Welcome to the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church Podcast, where we listen, learn, and love together. Our speaker today is Pastor Jonathan Panado. Father, as we begin this new series on Bible prophecy, Father, I pray that indeed we may be able to see how it is a revelation of your Son, Jesus Christ, of how indeed it is a revelation of your love, how indeed it is a revelation of how you guide us and how you lead us, and how we can have assurance and confidence and hope in these times, in these days in which we live. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Bible prophecy is not a fortune-telling device. Bible prophecy is not like the prophecies of Nostradamus. Bible prophecy is not like the Mayan calendar. Bible prophecy is not like other types of extra-biblical prophecies which are vague, which are ambiguous, which are mysterious, and they can lead to speculation, to sensationalism, and to alarmism. That is not what Bible prophecy is all about. Bible prophecy does not have secret messages or meanings embedded in code in the biblical text. Bible prophecy is not political in nature. Though political entities will be dealt with in Bible prophecy, but Bible prophecy is not political in nature. But Bible prophecy is first and foremost redemptive and moral. Bible prophecy is first and foremost redemptive and moral. Bible prophecy is about the word of the Lord speaking to us, speaking to you, and speaking to me concerning issues related to God, related to sin, related to salvation, and it's done within a time frame, within this universal time frame of the past the present, and the future. Let me say that one more time. Bible prophecy is about the word of the Lord speaking to you and speaking to me concerning issues related to sin, salvation, within a universal time frame of the past, the present, and the future. Bible prophecy is about forth-telling. Forth-telling. And not merely foretelling. What is forth-telling? Forth-telling is to proclaim a message truthfully, to proclaim a message publicly, to proclaim a message clearly, and to proclaim a message authoritatively. Bible prophecy is about forth-telling. The first example we have of this is found in Daniel chapter 2. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 speaks to us of how Bible prophecy is about forth-telling. Here we have Daniel chapter 2. And we ask ourselves, well, what is the purpose of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2? The the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2 is Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he sees a statue um, in his dream, an image in his dream. The head is made out of? Gold, the, the chest and the arms are made out of silver, the, the belly and the thighs are made out of bronze, the legs are made out of iron, and the feet are made out of 
iron mixed with clay. And then finally, as he sees that statue, something else comes out of nowhere. What is it? A rock comes out of nowhere, and it hits the statue where? On the feet, and that statue crumbles, and it dissolves, and then that rock turns into a giant mountain. Okay, that's kind of the, that's the, basically in a nutshell, that's the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2. So what is the purpose of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2? Well, you see, the purpose is, primarily, God was speaking directly to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had a problem. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar had absolute power. And, and you know that saying about power, right? Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. If you could just imagine this, Nebuchadnezzar is a king, and he has absolute power. He can do whatever he wants. He can go to different countries. He can conquer them. Nobody defeats him. He defeats everyone. He can do whatever he wants. Just imagine that. I don't know if you can do whatever you want. Can you do whatever you want? No, you can't. We can't, right? You know, we sometimes think we do, and, and, we, and, and we try to, and, and then we end up getting in trouble. Isn't that right? But imagine a man who can do whatever he wants. He is above the law. What he says is the law. If he wants to kill someone, he can just go ahead and kill them. No questions asked. He has absolute power. And so Nebuchadnezzar had this problem that he didn't realize where his power came from. And so God speaks to Nebuchadnezzar, and I think this is powerful here. Because there is a shift in the biblical text. You don't see it in the English. But in Daniel chapter 1, all the way till about Daniel chapter 2 and verse 4, Daniel is written in Hebrew. Hebrew, which is the language of of Israel. But in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 4, the language of the biblical text changes, and it's no longer Hebrew, it's Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of Nebuchadnezzar. And so what we see is God cares about this individual Nebuchadnezzar so much so that God decides to communicate to Nebuchadnezzar, to communicate to him in his own language. And he speaks to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. And he's trying to help Nebuchadnezzar because you see, God cares about leaders. God cares about the leaders of our world. He cares about the leaders of our nation. He cares about our president. He cares about all the leaders of the world. He wants to save all the leaders of the world. And so God comes to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, and he gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream. And notice what the purpose of this dream is. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 27. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 27. Notice what it, you can get a glimpse of the purpose of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel replied to the king, and he said, No wise men. No enchanter, no magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery that he has asked about. Notice the purpose. Verse 28, but, but what? There is a God. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And this God in heaven has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. You see, the purpose in God giving this dream to Nebuchadnezzar is that God wants to save Nebuchadnezzar. God wants to point the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar that there's more to life than just him and just what he wants to do. There is a God in heaven. And the biblical text will bring this out again. Verse 37. Verse 37 here. This was your dream. And now we will interpret it. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. Where have we heard that title before? 
Jesus, right? We say he's the king of kings and the lords of lords. That's how big Nebuchadnezzar was, that Daniel says, you are the king of kings. But notice what it says. You are the king of kings, but you are the king of kings because why? The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. And in your hands he has placed all mankind and he has placed the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over all of them. The purpose of Daniel chapter 2 was so that Nebuchadnezzar can realize that he is not the end all. He is not the sum of everything. There is someone above him and that someone is God. Verse 47 of Daniel chapter 2, Then the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of the mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. So we see a glimpse of hope here. Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was the all, but he recognizes after this dream that no, there is a God in heaven. But the problem with Nebuchadnezzar is that he had a short memory. He had a short memory, and in Daniel chapter 3, you remember what the story is in Daniel chapter 3? We have three friends, Daniel's three friends, and uh, they're thrown into the fiery furnace, right? And uh, finally, again, after they're delivered, Nebuchadnezzar will say, while truly I was wrong, and your God is the God of gods. But then Nebuchadnezzar has a short memory, and he forgets about God. Have you ever forgotten about God? Has God ever done something amazing in your life and you recognize that God is leading you and blessing you and you make a decision to be faithful to God and then a few months later you forget about God all over again? That was Nebuchadnezzar's problem. And so in Daniel chapter 4, God comes to Nebuchadnezzar again. And God is, is designed for Nebuchadnezzar to surrender his heart to him and he has a dream where he sees himself, where he sees a tree And that tree is cut down and an iron band is placed against it for seven years. And Daniel comes and tells him the interpretation that that tree that was cut down, that's going to be you. And you're going to become a wild beast. You're you're going to lose your mind. You're going to lose your kingdom. Everything that you take pride in, everything that you think you have done and that you're able to do, God is going to take all that away from you and you're going to act like a wild beast for seven years. You're going to lose your mind. You're going to go crazy. You're going to think you're an animal. And they're going to put you out in the field and you're going to be eating grass for seven years because you have failed to acknowledge that it's God who has given you everything that you have. And even after that dream, a year passes and God still doesn't pass. You know, God is just a merciful God, you know. And and he delayed even another year after that. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar just stands up and in his pride, he says, look at this Babylon. This is unbelievable. I've done this by my own power, by my own wisdom, by my own might. And then the word of the Lord comes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, you will now go to the the field for seven years. It took Nebuchadnezzar seven years to be out of his mind, to to, to, to be living like a beast, for him to finally recognize that God is the God of gods and to surrender his heart to him. How long will it take for us to acknowledge God in our lives? How long will it take for us to finally be faithful to God? We're with God and then we forget about Him and then we're with Him and then we forget about Him and then we get into trouble and then we pray and He helps us and and He lifts us up out of where we are to only for us to go back down there again. 
How many times will it take for us to finally say, God, I will follow you. I will be faithful to you no matter what. The good thing is that God is merciful with us. He loves us. He loves us and he will continue to pour his grace upon us time and time again. But we shouldn't be playing around with grace. We shouldn't be playing around with grace. This is the purpose of Daniel chapter 2. Now, the byproduct, the byproduct is that we get a benefit from what God revealed personally to Nebuchadnezzar. And, and we get a benefit and we get to see that, that God had a plan and he had, he had history all in, under control. We get a benefit from, from the byproduct of God having a special and personal encounter with Nebuchadnezzar. Because you see the purpose of Bible prophecy above and before foretelling the future. The purpose of Bible prophecy is first and foremost about forth-telling. Bible prophecy is about the word of the Lord speaking to us concerning issues related to sin and salvation within a universal time frame of the past, the present, and the future. The byproduct of this encounter is that realize that God has, he has this world in his hands. And sure enough, as that vision said, Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. And after Babylon would come another kingdom, Medo-Persia. After Medo-Persia, another kingdom would come, the kingdom of Greece. After Greece, a fourth kingdom would come, and that would be Rome. And then after Rome, after those legs of iron, history has proved itself true. There has not been another world empire since the days of Rome. It's been iron and clay mixed together. The nations have been trying to unite, but they haven't been able to all through the Middle Ages, even till now. You know, just when we think, right? Just when we think we got everything together, somebody decides to invade some country and then we throw sanctions at them and then the whole thing is just forget our alliance. The world since, that, since those days has tried to unite, but they haven't been able to. This is incredible. That God foretold that this would happen, that he revealed to us that this would happen back in 600 B.C. This is incredible, and it happened just the way God said it would. It's powerful. It's powerful. And it's no accident that we still begin our evangelistic series with a message of Daniel chapter 2. Because it's powerful how God revealed the future to us. But first and foremost, before revealing the future, it was a personal message to Nebuchadnezzar. God was speaking the truth to Nebuchadnezzar. Will you accept me? Will you recognize me in your life? Bible prophecy is first and foremost about forth-telling. Bible prophecy is about the word of the Lord speaking to us concerning issues related to sin and salvation within a universal time frame of the past, the present, and the future. Another example of this is found in Revelation. How does the book of Revelation begin in Revelation chapters 2 and 3? What are the very first messages that God gives? Before he gives us any prophecies about the end of time and the mark of the beast and the seven seals and the trumpets and all these kinds of things, what, is, what are the very first messages in the book of Revelation? Revelation 2 and 3. Seven messages. To who? To the churches. To the churches. Because Bible prophecy is first and foremost redemptive. God is telling us before we even get into what's going to happen in the future, God speaks directly and personally to his churches. 
And all his churches are different. And, you know, every church is different. I, I, I'm kind of figuring this out. You know, my previous district, the two churches that I had before here, uh, those two were different from each other. And those two are different from this church. Every church is different. And so God has, in, in the seven churches, you know, seven different personalities or types of churches. And God first, before revealing the future, he speaks to his churches. And in essence, the message that God has for his churches is, get your act together. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Uh, Ephesus, you've left your first love. <laughs> you have the right doctrine and you, you have everything straight. You don't tolerate false prophets, but you don't love anybody. You don't love me and you don't love anybody. Find your first love. You see, that's what Bible prophecy is first and foremost about. It's about foretelling. And, and then, and then it, there's another church. And that church loves everybody. And that church is very active in the community. But that church has a problem with allowing false doctrines and false teachings in that church. Isn't that ironic? And, and God has to tell them, I appreciate the love that you have. And, and the works that you're doing. They're wonderful. They're commendable. But you have this problem, you're allowing false teaching and false doctrine into your church. Before foretelling the future, God first speaks redemptively and morally to the church. Get your act together. Respect everyone. And then finally, he comes to that last church, Church of Laodicea. And the church of Laodicea doesn't care about anybody and doesn't care about anything. Their attitude is, I got it all. I got it. Don't tell me anything. I know what I'm doing. I'm rich and I'm increased with goods and I have need of nothing. Have you ever met a church like that? Have you ever met a person like that who thinks they got it all figured out? Have you ever been like that? And God is speaking to the church of Laodicea and telling them, before I reveal the future to you, open the door and let me in so that we can have time together, so that we can have communion together. You see, Bible prophecy is first and foremost about foretelling. Bible prophecy is about the word of the Lord speaking to us concerning issues related to sin and to salvation within a universal time frame of the past, the present, and the future. And, and, and the irony is, you know, the Bible says, by their fruits you shall know them. But the irony is, is that oftentimes what I've noticed is that the individuals who are most interested in Bible prophecy are the ones who are least like Jesus. The ones who are in, most interested in Bible prophecy are the ones who are most mean, most critical of the church, most critical of others. They have this holier-than-thou attitude, and they are divisive. They seem to better reflect the beast of Revelation 13 than the Lamb of God of Revelation 14. But if we engage in the study of Bible prophecy, the study of Bible prophecy should make us the most loving, the most kind, the most caring, and the most compassionate people. Because we have been allowing God to speak to us personally and directly. Bible prophecy is first and foremost about foretelling. Bible prophecy is about the word of the Lord speaking to us concerning issues related to sin, salvation within a universal time frame of the past, the present, and the future. And so that's why I say when people want to study Bible prophecy, they don't know what they're asking. They want to find out something sensational that's going to happen in the future. 
and they're too worried looking at what's going to happen in the future that they don't take time to see what God is telling them to their own personal life, how they can prepare for what's going to happen in the future. I've seen too many people worried about the evils of Catholicism or the Jesuits or what are the Jesuits up to? Have you heard about that? The Jesuits? You know, some people have thought I'm a Jesuit. You really that? Yeah, they have. I got to say that. <laughs> They're too worried. There's a Jesuit conspiracy around every corner. You know, in fact, you know, can I, can I say what I, can I just tell you a little bit about it? You know, they actually asked me directly, you know, they say, are you a Jesuit? <laughs> Well, you know, Je- Jesuits are order of Catholic priests, you know, they're order of Catholic priests, and uh, Catholic priests take a vow, you know, they take a vow of poverty, they, they, they take a vow of celibacy as well, and so, you know, I said, well, you know, I, I, you know, I am married, I am married, and then they turned, and this is how deep the conspiracy was, was in their mind, and they, they responded, and they said, Jesuits can become anything. You can't win, right? That's not what Bible prophecy is about. It's not what Bible prophecy is about. Sometimes I find individuals so worried about the evils of Catholicism or Jesuits or even the evils of the church or or what one preacher says and they'll send out mass emails. Did you hear what so-and-so said? Can you believe it? The, The problem is I don't have time. Personally, I'm speaking personally. I don't have time to worry about that kind of stuff. I'm too busy trying to listen to the word of the Lord speaking to me, speaking to my life. What God says to me about the evils in my life that I need to surrender, that I need to get rid of. I don't have time to look at the speck in someone else's eye. Doesn't that sound familiar? Jesus said something like that, didn't he? Bible prophecy, my friends, is first and foremost about foretelling, about allowing the word of the Lord to speak to us concerning my issues related to sin, salvation, within the universal time frame of the past, the present, and the future. Let's move on. Aspect number one, Bible prophecy is moral and redemptive in nature. But point number two, and this specifically has to do with the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is mainly divided into two sections. Uh, Daniel chapter one through six are mainly stories. Daniel chapter one is a story of Daniel going to captivity to Babylon. It's a story. Daniel chapter 3 is a story of the fiery furnace. Uh, Daniel chapter 5, the feast that they have, and the hand comes on the wall and writes many, many tekel of Pearson. That's a story. Daniel chapter 6 is the story of the lion's den. Daniel chapter 1 through 6 is mainly about story. Daniel chapter 7 through 12 is mainly about prophecy. Two main sections of the book of Daniel, story and prophecy. And the question is, well, what's the relationship between these two sections? Are the stories in Daniel irrelevant for us? Are the stories of the Daniel and the lines then just for the little kids or for Sabbath school or the fiery furnace? Is that just for the little kids? Or does that also speak to us? You see, the relationship between these two sections of the book of Daniel is that these local, literal stories and the lessons that they learned in these stories will play out on a global, spiritual scale. Did you catch that? These local and literal stories and the lessons that we learn. Like, what's the lesson that we teach our kids about the fiery furnace? What's, what's that lesson? Yeah, God is with you, right? Even in the fire? That's a good one, right? Because 
because Jesus showed up in the fire. God's with you no matter what, right? Uh, what's the story that we tell our children about um, uh, the, the lion's den? What's the story there? What's the moral of the lesson there? Protection. God will protect you. He'll send his angel, you know, pray and, and, and trust, you know. God will deliver you, right? These local literal stories and these lessons will play out on a global and spiritual scale when the prophecies are, are fulfilled. Do you follow that? Let me give you an example of that. Daniel chapter 3, the story of the fiery furnace. There is an image that goes up on the plain of Dura. There's this golden image that goes up on the plain of Dura. Does that sound familiar? An image? An image? Uh, the friends are commanded to do what? Bow down and worship that image. Any bells going off yet? Any, any light bulbs going off yet? And if they don't worship that image which has been set up, then what will happen? You're going to be killed. Does that sound like something else? Daniel chapter 6. Uh, what happens in Daniel chapter 6? In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is not allowed to pray. He's not allowed to worship his God. So we actually have a contrast. In Daniel 3, they have to worship a false God. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel's freedom and liberty to worship God is taken away. And when they catch him, they do what? They throw him in the in lines, then the idea is death. Does that sound like something else in Revelation 13 of an image of the beast and we'll be commanded to worship, and if we don't worship, we will then be put to death? You see, these stories, these local and literal stories and lessons will play out in the future on a global and spiritual scale. And so we need to learn now through these stories how to be faithful to God. So that when the, the, the test comes at the end of time, we'll be able to be found faithful, like Daniel. These stories speak to us of spiritual preparation for a future time of crisis. If we can't be faithful to God right now, now no one's knocking on our door and taking us to jail and killing us because we worship on Sabbath, because we want to be faithful to the Ten Commandments. If we can't be faithful to God right now, when we have the liberty to do so, we're kidding ourselves that we're going to be faithful in the future crisis. These local literal stories and lessons will play out on a global spiritual scale and they speak to us of spiritual preparation for a future time of crisis. It's not enough to know what's going to happen in the future. We have to be ready spiritually for what's going to happen in the future because you see Bible prophecy is about foretelling. It's about the word of the Lord speaking to us concerning issues related to sin and salvation within a universal time frame of the past, the present, and the future. Another example of this, Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel, who's, we think maybe he's 15 or 16, 17, we're not sure how old. He's a teenager. Any 15, 16, 17 year olds? You know, how, were, were any of you at one time 15 or 16 years old? You know, do, you, do you remember? Do you remember you know, what, that, what that was like? Okay. Uh, just imagine being taken exile, as an exile, being taken captive. Your parents have been killed. Uh, you're an orphan now, and you're exiled to a different country. You don't speak the language. You don't understand the custom. Daniel is a, is a, is a teenager, 15 to 17 year, years old, and he is in exile. And he's away from everyone. And in this exile, 
He has a spiritual test, and Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8 is the key to this test. In Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, can you imagine, were you faithful to God when you were 15 and 16 and 17? Were you faithful to God? In Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, Daniel purposed in his heart, he said. Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the royal food and the wine. And he asked the chief officials for permission not to defile himself in this way. In Daniel chapter 1, we have this teenager who's in this identity crisis, who's in this educational crisis. Have you ever seen our teenagers in a crisis of identity, of who they are, of of what they want to do with life, of of where they want to go in life, and they don't know? Here Daniel is 15, 17 years old in this crisis, but yet he determines in his heart that he will be faithful to God. Spiritually, he is faithful to God. Our teenagers, our, our, our young people, our adults sometimes... You know, we don't have the privilege always of having a Christian education. Just imagine Daniel here. He's not in Jerusalem anymore. Uh, He doesn't have access to the schools of the prophets anymore. He's in Babylon, the symbol of everything that is wrong, of everything that is corrupt. And he's a teenager and he's thrown into the midst of this. But Daniel, as a teenager, purposes in his heart that he's going to be faithful to God. Sometimes we find ourselves here, our children can't be in Adventist schools. They can't be in a Christian school. We would want them to be, but they're not. And so they find themselves as exiles, as spiritual exiles. And let me tell you something. I mean, as much as, as I, and I've heard, you know, people say, well, Adventist schools, they're not perfect. And oh, you know, this and that, whatever. Let me tell you, Adventist schools are way better than the alternative. There is no comparison. I've been through them all. Being in an Adventist school doesn't guarantee that you're going to go in heaven, but it places the child in an environment where they can have spiritual success. But sometimes we're not able to send our children, or they can't be in an Adventist or Christian school. I remember when in Houston, I I went to Christian school uh, for my first four years. That's all I knew. Um, And then the school closed down in Houston. Our Adventist academy closed down in Houston. And then for fifth grade, I was sent to public school. Totally, totally different. Totally different. And I remember, you know, just the influence. And I I remember I was used to sitting down. I think I've shared this with you, you know. You sit down in a meal in a Christian school, in an Adventist school. You sit down for a meal, and what do you do before you eat? You pray. And that's that's just what I had been taught. That's what what I was going to do. And so I remember my first, you know, day at school. And, you know, we all were all sitting at the table. And I'm just, you know, waiting for the teacher to pray. You know, and, and, and I'm just waiting there, you know, well, who's going to pray? And nobody prays. And so then I, I just kind of, you know, and, and pray. And it had an influence on me because shortly after that, I, I was like, well, you know, this is, I'm the only one doing it. You're 10 years old. You know, you've been embarrassed, you know, you've been embarrassed, especially when you're a kid, right? You get embarrassed. As adults, adults, we don't get embarrassed, do we? I don't get embarrassed. Do we eat something? I don't get embarrassed anymore. I have no shame. But when you're a little child, you know, you, you, you get embarrassed. And I was there, the only one praying. And the influence, you know, surely little by little, I stopped praying. I stopped praying. I don't want to be the only one. I stopped praying. I didn't want to be the only one. But the message to us of Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8 is that even our young people, they can purpose in their heart to be faithful to God. 
Sooner or later, our young people will be exposed to the ideas of Babylon, to the ideas of this world. Can our young people purpose in their hearts to be faithful to God spiritually? Daniel also had a challenge as a 15 and 16-year-old mentally. He was now going to study in the school of Babylon. The school of Babylon had all kinds of different ideas to what he had been taught. He had been taught that there was one God, the creator of the world. Here in Babylon, he was going to be taught that there was many gods. And all those gods did something different. Can our young people maintain their faithfulness to God mentally, academically? There are so many different ideas out there that our young people are exposed to. Ideas about origins. Ideas about lifestyle. About sexuality. About ethics. Can our young people purpose in their hearts to be faithful to God? Our young people are in exile. Can our young people also purpose in their hearts not only to be spiritually faithful to God, mentally faithful to God, but there is also a very real and physical test. The issue of what they were going to eat, what Daniel was going to eat, what Daniel was going to drink. And Daniel purposed in his heart that he would be faithful to God. He would not eat the unclean foods on the king's table. He would not drink the wine that was on the king's table. Is it a coincidence that Adventists have something called a health message? Where where, where do we come up with that stuff? Have you guys heard of the Daniel diet? You guys heard about that? That's that's big. That's big in in the evangelical world. The Daniel diet, and where are they getting it from? They're getting it from Daniel chapter 1. That God is calling us not just to be spiritually faithful to him, uh, mentally faithful to him, but also mental physically as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul says, Whatever you eat or you drink, do all to the glory of God. Is it then a coincidence that in Revelation 14, in, in the middle of the mark of the beast, in the crisis of the mark of the beast, it says, Fear God and give glory to Him? Is it a coincidence? My friends, these local literal stories and lessons will play out on a global scale, on a global spiritual scale, scale, and they are speaking to us about the spiritual preparation for a future time of crisis. Finally, point number three here of Bible prophecy, point number three of Bible prophecy is that we will hold to this radical principle, this radical principle called sola scriptura. Have you heard that before? Sola Scriptura. What does that mean? That means by the Bible and the Bible alone. As we enter to try to understand the prophecies of Daniel, we will stick and we will allow the Bible to interpret itself. Daniel, an example of this. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 38. You know, that head of gold. You know, uh, what did that head of gold represent? Babylon. How do we know that? Did we just make that up? How do we know that? Because Daniel chapter 2, verse 38, tells us. It says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, or or representative of Babylon, you are that head of gold. And after you, another kingdom will arise. We know the interpretation of this prophecy because the Bible tells it to us. Daniel chapter 7. And in verse 15, we have these different beasts. How do we know what these beasts represent? Well, we know what these beasts represent because the Bible tells us what they represent. Notice what it says, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 15. 
I, I, I approached 16. I approached one of those standing there and I asked him the meaning of all this. And so he told me and he gave me the interpretation of these things. These four beasts that you see are four kings or, or kingdoms that will arise from the earth. Yeah, we don't have to make this stuff up. The Bible tells us the interpretation. Here's another example. In Daniel chapter 8. In Daniel chapter 8 and verse 20 and 21. The Bible becomes even more specific. You have this, this, this vision of the, a ram and the he-goat. What do they represent? Well, the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 8 and, and verse 20 and 21. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. And the shaggy goat is the king of Greece. Now, we're allowing the Bible to tell us what the interpretation is. And we're going to stick with this. This is a radical principle. People pay lip service to this. When it comes to interpreting the Bible, though, they don't follow through with this. They're inconsistent. And so I have a friend who is like, you know, why? there's just too much history there. You know, who cares about Babylon? I mean, we're, how many thousands of years removed from Babylon? Who cares about Medo-Persia? Who cares about Greece? Who cares about Rome? These prophecies speak to us today in our day, right? And I, I think they do speak to us in our day. But the reason there's a lot of history is because we're living at the end of time. The majority of prophecies have already been fulfilled. That's why there's a lot of history, right? And so in his, in his idea to find new relevance in these prophecies, especially specifically this one, he says, no, the, 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 ram represents, um, the ram represents Iraq and the, the goat represents uh, Iran. And the shaggy goat represents uh, the United States, who's going to come against them. And he's like, see, we already went against Iraq, right? We've already gone against Iraq. The next one we're going to go up against is Iran, right? Okay. Uh, it could be. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what, what we're going to do in the future. The problem that I have with that is that the Bible tells us that Ram is Medo-Persia and that goat is Greece. When I start saying it's something else, then I'm not following what the Bible is saying. And, 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 when, and when you're not following what the Bible is saying, when you're just making it up on yourself, I mean, uh, what is it? Uh, creativity? Your imagination is the limit. Oh, my words, you can come up with all kinds of things. And that's what a lot of people do when they get into the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. There's just unbelievable things that they come up with because their imagination is the limit. And they're not allowing the Bible to speak and to interpret itself. So as we engage in the study of the Bible, we will stick to that radical principle of the Bible and the Bible alone. Sola Scriptura. And so in conclusion, we're going to ask God as we continue in this series... We're going to ask God to give us the discipline to immerse ourselves in the biblical text. How many times do you have to read each chapter? Ten, Ten times. It's going to take discipline. Sometimes we struggle reading it once, right? Ten times. God, give us the discipline to immerse ourselves in the biblical text. And can we also on this journey commit ourselves to allow the biblical text to speak to us in a personal way? in a personal message concerning what I need to do in relationship to sin and salvation. May the study of Bible prophecy lead us to faithful living. May the study of Bible prophecy lead us to prepare ourselves mentally, spiritually, and physically for the end time crisis. Can we commit ourselves to this? 
This podcast is brought to you by the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. Connect with them at www.jxsda.org or on Facebook and YouTube. We look forward to sharing more inspiring messages with you.